and self-righteousness. I would like to answer these questions about humility. What does it look like? Is there anything exciting about humility? And how can we grasp a hold of humility and make it a part of our lives? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And I'd like to read the first 11 verses here. And from time to time here, I'm going to refer back to this passage to understand some things about humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What does humility look like? It tells us here in this passage, it gives us several ideas of what humility looks like. He says in verse 3, nothing should be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And that we are to consider others as better than ourselves. We are to look out for the interests of others. And then um, in verses 5 and 6 there and, and going on there, it gives us the example of Christ. He came to serve others. Humility is serving others. It's looking out for the interests of others. It's considering others as better than ourselves. It's not being selfish but focused on others. And these are hard things to do, so often we find, because our natural sinful man Um, wants to look out for ourselves first. A mindset of humility also is understanding who God is and understanding that I am not God. This may seem very simple and basic, but again, we will never completely understand God, and it's a lifelong process of seeking to understand who he is. And no, we know we're not God, but yet, again, in our sinful nature, we do try to put ourselves in the position of God. Romans 12, 3 says, Humility is not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So there's a proper way of viewing ourselves and a proper way of viewing God. 
The story is told of the famous inventor Samuel Morse, and I I can't really verify this. This was many years ago, and I realized, too, that there was some things about Samuel Morse in his life that were were less than, than the standard of Scripture. But this is what he once said when he was asked if he ever encountered situations where he didn't know what to do. Now, Samuel Morse was the man who invented or helped invent the Morse code and was... Um, the, the one who invented the telegraph. And in, in many ways, uh, a key um, individual in, in, the, in bringing the, some of the technology that we have today through electronics. He was asked if he ever encountered situations where he didn't know what to do. His response was more than once. And whenever I could see my, not see my way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and understanding. Morse received many honors from his invention of the telegraph, but he felt undeserving. He said, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone, and he was pleased to reveal it to me. I thought that pretty well defines an attitude or a mindset of submission. Though he accomplished great things, he realized that God chose to use him. It could have been someone else. The knowledge he had came from God, and he asked God for it. That's not thinking ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Another good example uh, that defines humility is the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 3, verse 7, I'm talking about his ministry of the gospel. He says, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul realized that he was completely undeserving. He calls himself less than the least of all the saints. And when he looked back in his life, we know his his story of his previous life where he persecuted Christians. He did not see him as better than others, even though he was one of the, maybe one of the most effective apostles in spreading the gospel. He traveled many miles and started many churches, and yet he did not see himself as better than the others, but rather as less than the least of the saints. He preached the gospel because God called him to, and God gave him the grace to do it. Humility is the opposite of pride. That's a very simple, basic way to understand it. We know what pride is. We know how disgusting it is when other people are, are we consider to be very proudful. Humility is the opposite. We cannot be proud of our humility. The two don't go together. God talks about the proudful and the humble. And the rewards for those who are humble, the the. Punishment for the the proud. The two are opposites. They cannot go together. I'd like to turn to the book of Genesis and spend a little time here looking at the life of Abraham and in particular over the time when him and his nephew Lot were sort of working together, close to each other. Um, Abraham here is an example of what humility should look like. 
I'm just going to pull out uh, several parts of this story to read out of chapters 13, 14, and 18. Probably a story that you're familiar with. So Abraham's nephew Lot here was traveling with him, working with him. Uh, they had their, their flocks and their herds and their, their wealth. They had quite a uh, large amount of possessions. They kind of intermingled, and it seems like Abraham had taken Lot um, under his wing kind of as his own son, since he didn't have a son at this time. And uh, Lot's father, Abraham's brother, had passed away. And so he kind of took him under his wing. Um, in chapter 13, we then see where they came to a time when their possessions I'm not in the right place yet. Their possessions became so large and and they could barely get along with each other. The herdsmen were were fighting and I think Abraham saw, wisely saw, that that it would be good if they would um, separate, realizing that this strife would eventually spread and come between him and Lot. Um, it says in verse 6, The land was not able to support them, and they, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. I'll stop right there. So, Abraham, it seems to me, Abraham would not have had to treat Lot here like he was a partner. He could have treated him like a servant. After all, he was fatherless. Um, He could have probably just as well been one of Abraham's servants. But he treated him with respect, allowed him to um, gain wealth. And when the time came that they could no longer dwell together, he gave Lot the first choice of the land to dwell in. Abraham considered others as better than himself, and he looked out for the interests of others. He humbly took what was left, and it appears that Lot chose what he thought would be best for his livestock. He thought of himself first, the good land. Later on, we read where Lot was captured during time of war there, where the king of so he was dwelling near Sodom, and the king of there's another king came and or several kings and, and made war with the king of Sodom, and Lot and his possessions and, and a lot of things possessions that the king of Sodom had there were captured and taken away, and Abraham found out about this. It tells us that Abraham took his men and went out and rescued Lot. Again, it seems like by this time, okay, Lot, you're kind of on your own. You made a choice for this good land over here. You have what you need. If you get yourself in trouble, you're on your own. That could have been Abraham's attitude, but it was not. Again, he was looking out for the interests of others. He went after this king, rescued Lot and his possessions, and to top it off, he 
um, came back with all the goods that had been taken and he did not want any of them. The king of Sodom said, here, you can, you can have some of the spoils, some of the things you brought back. He said, no, um, Abraham had made a vow to God there that he would not keep those possessions and he gave them back. Abraham seems to be a good example of what humility looks like. Later on, when the angels of God came and visited Abraham in chapter 18, we can read about this. They, the Lord informed him that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed because of their wickedness. We know that Lot at that time was living there in that city, and Abraham pleaded with God to, to spare the city if he would find some righteous there. And he kept lowering that number. First it was 50, then 40, then 30, and, and all the way down to, I think it was 10, where he ended up at. Where God agreed that, yeah, if I find 10 righteous people there, I will spare the city. Abraham pled for Lot's salvation. Um, it seems like God did not find ten people there, but he did spare Lot and his family and brought them out. Abraham is an example of one who lived in humility. C.S. Lewis once said that this is what it might look like to meet a humble person. He says, probably all of you will think about him. Probably all that you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. Is there anything exciting about humility? Is, I think we often view that as just, yeah, we know we're supposed to be humble. It's kind of boring. It's, sometimes we have to suffer. Is there anything exciting about humility? C.S. Lewis would indicate that others may be envious when they see our humility. They may actually dislike us because they're envious of the joy that we have if we are humble. We might wrongly believe that humility is a sense of shame, inferiority, and a low self-esteem. But the truth is, humility never diminishes our identity as, as an image bearer of God. Humility does not mean that we part with the excitement of being sons and daughters of God. Humility understands that we have value and purpose in the universe only because of what God has chosen to give to us. Our skills, our accomplishments, our wisdom and righteousness and anything good that we do is only possible by the grace of an almighty God. That should be exciting. Humility makes us likable people. Humility brings unity and peace. A mindset of humility prepares the seedbed for unity and truth to grow. If we go back to Philippians chapter 2 now. Paul's encouragement here to the church is that they would be like-minded, that they would live in unity. He is encouraging them 
and to us to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I think you could agree that it's exciting. It's We prefer to live in unity and peace. <clears throat> so he's encouraging them to do that. He says the way to do it is by being humble. As he moves from verse 2 into verse 3, that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Another word for that, uh, if, another way to interpret that Greek word would be hum- humility. Lowliness of mind. <clears throat> humility is also a long-term investment. So when you think of a long-term investment in in our economy in, in economics, you might think of a mortgage, a 20-year mortgage, for example. You look at that and you realize that you're going to be paying this amount every month for the next 240 months, plus interest, plus insurance, plus whatever else all goes in there. It's a long-term investment. It's not always fun to make that payment every month, but you do it because you know there's going to be value there in the end. It's going to likely increase in value. Humility is a little bit the same way. It's not always pleasant to be in a place of humility. Sometimes we suffer now for a future gain. Like C.S. Lewis said, others are a little envious of someone who seems to be enjoying to enjoy life so easily. And when they're envious, we face persecution. I think of the Jewish leaders and Jesus in, in the Gospels and what was all going on at that time. We know that by and large in, in the religious circles there among the Jews, um, they lived with a lot of pride, I believe, because of the blessings that um, God had given them. They allowed that to become something in their lives that they were proud of. They didn't understand um, God's plan of salvation, of coming as a lowly and humble king to save them from their sin. And there was strife between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Jesus came as a perfect example of a humble man. He suffered for it. He did not return evil with evil. That's one of the things that humility is. It's not returning evil with evil, but rather um, treating our enemies with kindness. If we would read in, I think it's John chapter 8, I'm not going to take the time to turn there, really see this strife between the Jewish leaders and Jesus kind of coming to a head there, where they're saying, uh, look, you're not a king, you're not from God. Uh, you're not from the right lineage. They, they called him a Samaritan, which was a derogatory term. They spoke very unkindly to him as he tried to tell them who he was. That he was their Messiah. <clears throat> there was a lot of strife. It wasn't always joyful, easy, peaceful, unified between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. It wasn't because of Jesus' lack of humility, but because he was a humble servant, a savior. So humility is a long-term investment. 
Jesus was willing to come to humble himself and come to this world because he saw the long-term payoff, if you will. We're promised a future gain in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. I have this written down here. 5 verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So is there anything exciting about humility? We know it's what God wants for us. We realize that at times we may suffer as we live humbly for him. But it's a long-term investment. Now how do we grasp a hold of humility. Like I said earlier, it seems like it slips away from us so easily. About the time we think we really have it, then we realize we're actually just being proud. How do I keep humble? And how do I have a mindset of humility? I'd like to consider, to give you several questions from the scriptures to consider, to think about, and to answer for yourselves. I think as we we think about these questions, as we ponder this, it will help us to grasp a hold, keep a hold of of humility and what it is. Like I said in my title, I suggested it's a mindset. It's not so much something we do as is a way that we live, a, a virtue that we possess, a mindset. The first question to consider if we want more humility is 1 Corinthians 4.7. Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? He's asking this to the Corinthian church. They, were, they had a problem with pride. It's pretty obvious if you study that book. They had a problem with pride in that church. What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast? as if you had not received it? That's one question we can think about and answer for ourselves. If we want more humility, what do you really have that hasn't been given to you? What did you do to deserve to live where you live, to have the parents you have, to have been given the opportunities you have? What did you even do to ever deserve salvation, to to even know about God? Many people in the world have not had the opportunities that you had. Is there anything that you have that you did not receive? If you did not receive it, or if you did indeed receive it, you cannot be proud of it. Someone gave it to you. Another question uh, is in in Job, and, and I'd like to just turn to the book of Job briefly. If you're at all familiar with this story, you know that um, God, while Job was humbled, he was a very wealthy or well-to-do man, a very godly man, and in a very short time, he lost almost everything he had, suffered greatly. And Job complained because it's not fair, God. You should have never even allowed me to live if this is all that I'm here for. It's not fair. He complained bitterly about his circumstances. And yes, he, re- he re- did refuse to curse God. But God had some things to teach him. And in 
chapters, um, it's probably about 37 through 39 or 40, God asked Job a lot of questions. Dozens of questions about the world around him, about what he sees, about what he understands and doesn't understand. And I'm not going to take the time to read through all that, but I think Job kind of sums up all of what God has said to him in one question here, and that's the one I like for us to consider. In chapter 42, verse 3, Job is talking here to God, and he says to God, You ask, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And I'd like to read that to you in the New Living Translation. I think it's, the meaning is a little plainer there. Job says to God, You ask, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. Are we willing to ask that question? Are, are, are we... Are we questioning God? Do we realize how wise he is and that everything we know is ignorance compared to the wisdom that God has? See, the questions that God was asking Job here had to do with, with a lot of them with creation, the stars, the universe, the animals, uh, how they operated, how did they know to do the right thing at the right time, and, and how did all this come to be? It's kind of the questions that God was putting to Job. And Job realized how little he was, how little knowledge he possessed, how small he was compared to God. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance is the, the question that God was asking Job. Do we have the right to question God when things don't go our way? How humble are we in a the situation like Job was in. <clears throat> Next is in Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes this book. And in the first chapter, verses 1 through 3. We know that Solomon was a very wise man. And... He did a lot of studying and observing and pondering and, and um, was trying to figure out things in life. He says in Ecclesiastes 1, 3, and 4, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? So he's asking us, I think, to view ourselves as one little speck on the whole timeline um, from, from the beginning of time to the end. We're one little speck. Our whole lifetime is just one little speck on there. What, what profit do we have? All the effort we go to, all the toil we go to, to accomplish things and gain things while we're here on this earth for that short little time. What profit is there? He goes on to say later on that um, in considering this 
his toil and labor and his time here. He says, I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or foolish. We work hard in this time we have here on earth. And, and that's not wrong. But, but in light of all eternity, who are we? How important is that? We leave it behind for someone else. We don't know what they're going to do with it. He's not suggesting that our life here is useless, but rather asking us to consider who are we really in the whole picture? Are we really as great as we think we are? And if in Peter, or Peter in in John chapter 6, is another question I'd like for us to consider. In John chapter 6, verse 68 um, the setting there is, is Jesus was teaching and it says many of his disciples turned away from him and quit following him. Many of them became discouraged, frustrated, uh, maybe angry at him for what he was saying, didn't understand it. Many of his disciples went looking somewhere else. Said, I don't need to follow this man anymore. I think I can understand life, figure things out without Jesus. They turned away from him. Then Jesus asked, 12 disciples who stayed with him, are you too going to leave? So Peter asked a rhetorical question. So he wasn't so much asking it because he was wanted an answer. But he says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves too. Really, where else could we go but to Christ? Where else can we turn? Do we have any other hope, really, in this world? We think we can accomplish a lot of great things, but it's only by the grace of God. Who else has the words of eternal life but Jesus Christ? Again, we're just this little speck on the whole timeline. In eternity, what will really matter? Lord, to whom shall we go? So again, let's consider these questions if we want to have the mindset of humility. I'll go back over them again. What do we have that we did not receive? Do we have any right to question the wisdom of God? How does our wisdom compare with his? What does it profit a man to labor his whole life and then leave it to others? And who else could we turn to but Christ? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can give us life other than Christ? In closing, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Again, I I read these verses already, but I'd like to refer back there again. These verses speak of the exalted Christ, the humble Christ and the exalted Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mindset we are to have, like Christ. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then it talks about his exaltation. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name 
that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to consider that in the end, every knee will bow before God. We have a choice to do that now. In the end, all will. And though we are not like Christ, I mean, we are not, we are not Christ, I should say. So it talks here about how he will be exalted, but there is also an exaltation for those who follow Christ, for those who have the mind of Christ, as it calls us to hear. There's an exaltation. First uh, Peter 5 again, it says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a reward of grace for those who are humble. And, the hum- and then he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Just like it talks about Christ being exalted here as he came down to this earth, he humbled himself, he, he, he put away his reputation. He took the form of a human being. He gave up the perfect life he had with his heavenly father. And then he was exalted. In the same way, we too have that promise that we will one day be exalted if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In due time, he too will exalt us. That is something exciting about humility. There is something exciting. There is a future exaltation and reward. Let's keep that in mind as we strive to be humble. I'm not sure if that's the right word. But it's more a taking on the mind of Christ. That then, um, without even trying to be humble, we won't, like, again, like C.S. Lewis said, we won't see these people um, talking about humility. But it shows in their life. And we be like that. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can have the words of life, your written word before us. There really is nowhere else that we can turn to. You have given us a brief time on this earth, time to live. You have given us purpose, a reason for being here. It's our desire to be faithful, to be your humble servants, to accept what you bring into our lives, to consider that life is a gift that's been given to us. We ask you to guide us, to teach us, to lead us, to give us the mind of Christ, that we may be like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken, do you have a song, closing song, and let's